Well, last time, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the truthfulness and inerrancy of Scripture, and I thought it would be useful to talk about some alleged errors in the Bible. There has been no end of allegations against the truthfulness of God's Word, especially in the last 200 years or so. And there are many books and now websites that say the Bible cannot be God's Word because it's filled with errors. Now, let me say at first that my goal is not to prove inerrancy. You can't prove inerrancy. But it can be disproven. If there was one incontrovertible fact that contradicted the original text of Scripture, that would take down the whole edifice of inerrancy. And we don't believe in in inerrancy because some people said it was the case, but we say it, it must be inerrant because of the nature of Scripture and the character of the God of Scripture. So even if I had the time and the knowledge to address every alleged error, I would not be establishing the authenticity of Scripture just demonstrating it. I don't establish it, I just demonstrate it. I can't in myself prove the Bible is true. Otherwise, who would be the authority? Me. I'm not the authority on the Bible. It is its own authority. But we can express and understand God's truthfulness through his scriptures. Now, last time I asked for any alleged errors, and a couple of you reached out, thank you for that. I'll get to some of them as well as uh, some others. And I'll break these up into a few pieces, and this may feel more like a, a school class than a, maybe a, a Bible study or a, a sermon. Sorry for that, but I think it helps us to understand better some of the objections and how we can answer them. And the categories roughly are alleged historical errors, alleged scientific errors, and alleged contradictions. And again, up front I'll say I can't touch hardly any that you might be able to find, you might have in your own mind, maybe some website you found, but just to get a broad overview and how you might address some of them. Now let's first look at alleged historical errors. Now, there have been many claims that the Bible contains historical errors, but the pattern is that as archaeological discoveries are made, these support the biblical ref- uh, record rather than disputing it. And it seems like every uh, few weeks or so we see some excavation in the Holy Land that s- says that that has maybe some reference to King David or something else that that demonstrates that the Bible speaks historically uh, truthfully and it contradicts those who say it can't actually be true. One example uh, is from Gleason Archer in his helpful book, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. He said, back in 1850, many learned scholars were confidently denying the historicity of the Hittites and the Horites of Sargon II of Assyria and Belshazzar of Chaldean Babylon, or even of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet all of these have more recently become accepted by the scholarly world because of their appearance and ancient documents discovered within the last 15 decades of archaeological investigation. And it's interesting that the rise of this great skepticism of the Bible also seemed to come about the same time as a lot of the archaeological discoveries were being made. Almost as if they were just waiting for the skeptics to come so, so they could, the skeptics could be disproven. Uh, another example from James Boyce, <clears throat> talking about Second Kings 15.29, and this verse speaks of a king of Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser. He is said to have conquered the Israelites of the northern kingdom and to have taken many of them into captivity. A generation ago, liberal scholars were saying that this king never existed because they had no independent record of him and that the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria was mythology. But then archaeologists excavated Tiglath-Pileser's capital city and found his name pressed into bricks, which read, 
I, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, am a conqueror from the great sea, which is in the country of Amuru, as far as the great sea, which is in the Nairi country, that is the Mediterranean. In other words, archaeologists have found evidence not only of Tiglath-Pileser's existence, but even of the very campaign Second Kings describes. Now, there's one more supposed error in the Bible, and this point doesn't have a certain explanation. This is the census of Luke 2, and you know this well from Christmas time. And Luke 2, 1 and 2 says, Now in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now from Matthew, we know that Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born. We also know from history that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. This is always a problem now because of our dating system. It was, whenever it was established, it was off by a few years. We don't know, of course, exactly when Jesus was born, but it was uh, no later than 4 BC. So, if you think, you know, it's too late now to change anything. <laughs> We'd call this now 2027. But in any case, uh, that's just what we're stuck with. Now, Josephus, the historian, mentions a census under Quirinius around AD 6. So this is about 10 years after the, the latest uh, date Jesus could have been born. So how do we deal with this 10-year difference? Now, there's several possible explanations, but we can't be sure what the explanation is at this point. Some would say here that the term translated first here, this was the first census, could be translated before. So it was referring to the census taken before Quirinius was governor. Another option is that the census was commanded around the birth of Christ, but it took years to actually uh, be undertaken. We've seen this before, haven't we, in uh, maybe construction projects around here? <laughs> they say, it's going to start, and then it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and it's still only partially done. So that's one option. It took 10 years for this even to, to happen. Another option was that Quirinius had some important position and maybe he was a military governor around the time Christ was born, and then was governor again later. So in this case, this, this term first implies a second census. So there may be some census earlier that took a, some time, maybe 10 years earlier. Quirinius was a, some kind of governor then, but he was the, another, he was governor again, or still, when the next census occurred. The point is that we, again, we don't know exactly what the right answer is, but there, there are several possible uh, good explanations. It doesn't mean the Bible is wrong, and when you actually look at how much historical information we have about the time of Christ, it really is very small. Yes? Because he did, did a good job. It's like a Grover Cleveland kind of thing where he was president twice. Yeah, that, that's certainly... Yeah, and that may well be in some of my information here might be dated too. It's hard to keep up with everything. Yeah. The point is, yeah, there, there are good explanations for this. Um, unfortunately, I wish we had voluminous detail about all the things that happened from the creation till now, but it's just not the case. So there's a couple of historical alleged errors. Let's look at some scientific ones. Um, And obviously we'll skip things like 
big ones like evolution or the flood, some of these things that would take many weeks to discuss, but just a few short things. And I mentioned this uh, last time briefly. 1 Kings 7.23 speaks of this great wash basin in the temple, which was 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form. Its height was 5 cubits and 30 cubits its circumference. Um, and people would say, well, we know that a circle is, or the, the circumference of a circle is pi times the diameter, and so this should actually be 31.41 whatever uh, cubits around. Well, there, there's some obvious explanations. One is that this thing wasn't exactly circular, uh, but it probably was pretty close. Um, it may be that the 30 cubits was an inner circumference. If, if you had a, a thick um, sort of bowl basin, it may have, the thickness may have been included in one measurement and not the other. Or I think the most likely explanation, it was just a matter of imprecision. When you're measuring with your forearm or a stick, uh, they, they didn't have laser. Uh, my son has a laser uh, ruler on his, his phone, right? You can measure things to a great precision. Um, they didn't measure things like that. They would use sticks or or, um, or even body parts to measure things. So to, to talk about these sort of imprecise measurements doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It's just imprecise in some cases. Another couple of fairly easy ones that I ran across. Leviticus uh, 11.20, this is in King James Version, says, all, it speaks of all fowls that creep going upon all four shall be an abomination to you. And the skeptic might say, well, fowl don't go on, on all fours. The thing, we think of things like ducks and geese and so forth. But this is an issue with the English translation. If you look it up in your New American Standard or something else, it, it speaks of winged insects. And literally, it's swarming things with wings. And so sometimes these sort of alleged problems are mistranslations or archaic uses of terms. We wouldn't use the term fowl to speak of winged insects, but they might have several hundred years ago. Another popular one among the skeptics is the issue of Jonah and what swallowed him. Jonah 1.17 says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. But if you look at King James in Matthew 12.40, it says that Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. And we all, everybody knows that whales are mammals and fish are fish. And why can't the Bible get these things right? Well, the, the people in Bible times did not distinguish animals in those ways. They just see sea creatures. It's sort of where the animals lived. Are things in the sea? Are they on the land? Do they crawl on the land? Or do they fly? Or they are out in the field? That's how they tended to express the, the kinds of animals there were. And so just because the people in Bible times did not distinguish between uh, mammals that live in the water and fish that live in the water doesn't mean it's wrong. Other English translations use the term, say, sea monster or great fish, and the Greek term in Matthew could be used for any of these things, any large creature that lives in the sea. A couple of other items here. Um, Rabbits. Leviticus 11.6 says, this is talking about which animals are clean and unclean. The rabbit, uh, though it chews cud, does not divide the hoof, so it's unclean to you. Now, rabbits or hares don't really chew cud like cows do, but they do appear to. And also, rabbits do eat some of their droppings in order to gain some more nutrients, which is much like what cows do when they chew their cud anyway. And then one more alleged scientific error. Again, small examples. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 31 and 32, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, 
which is which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, there are two alleged errors here. One is that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed, and that mustard seeds don't go grow into trees. Now, the second objection, again, tries to force our scientific categories, our modern categories, on the ancients. Mustard plants can grow to 10 to 15 feet. Now, we might not call them trees. We might call them bushes ourselves, but in this world, they might use the term tree to refer to that sort of plant. And on the first point, Jesus is not making an absolute statement that it's smaller than all the seeds on the earth, but of the common seeds that would be planted and known by a farmer in Palestine at this time. So when you understand it again in the context, it makes sense. It's, it's not trying to make a scientific point, but to make a, a point about faith. Now, so I've talked about some historical errors, some scientific errors. Now let's look a bit at some alleged contradictions. When I did this series back in 2009 and 2010, someone pointed me to a website which listed 422 alleged contradictions. I haven't looked at it recently. Maybe there's more. Now, to its credit, this website did list Christian responses, but many of these allegations are absurd, unfair, or extremely minor and easily answered. Now, as a Christian, if you see the number 442, you may have your faith shaken at the sheer number of those things. How can I possibly counter 442 or more alleged contradictions. But if you look more closely at these contradictions, many of them just fade away with a little attention. And so it's like throwing dust in the air. You kind of get confused by all the the motion, but when you really look at it and let things settle a bit, it's not that frightening, not that impressive uh, an accomplishment. And I didn't look at that time at all 442 of all of them, but I looked at a few random ones. And Several of them were ridiculous and easy to answer, and most of the others could be answered with a good commentary. And so there's lots of resources online you could ask. Uh, remember I said last time, I think ask Brett or Tom if you have questions about these things, and maybe me too. But there's, there's lots of good resources to help with these sorts of alleged errors. And really, a lot of them would answer themselves that the skeptic would just read carefully. That's a big problem. Just read it. What does it actually say? Um, James White said this about these so-called contradictions. Uh, the apologist James White says this, having two sources say the same thing in different words is not a contradiction. Having one author choose to include a different set of facts in his recounting of an incident than another author is not a contradiction. And having one author give more information than another is not a contradiction. We'll see some of this later. So you take a careful examination of things and you see that they are not actually contradictions. Here's, here's one kind of silly one. Uh, there's, and ten, and ten Commandments, of course, say, Thou shalt not covet. Other verses speak against coveting. And yet, the skeptic quoted 1 Corinthians 12.31, Covet earnestly the best gifts, or 1 Corinthians 14.39. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Now, notice he's using King James as well. So it, that helps these, with these contradictions because it uses terms that we don't understand perhaps as well in the context of how they were understood 400 years ago. But obviously the answer here is that the term covet can mean different things. It's not uh, that coveting the best gifts or coveting to prophesy is a sin. It's not like you're trying to take something from somebody else. It's the 
the idea of covet is just to desire something, isn't it? And so it's not the desire itself is sinful, but it's the object of the desire that makes it sinful. So you can have a sinful desire for your neighbor's wife or your, your neighbor's house or your neighbor's animals, but to covet the best gifts, to covet prophecy, is not a sin at all. Uh, here's some uh, numerical issues in the Old Testament especially. We see this in Second Kings 24, verse 8. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. But Second Chronicles 36, 9 says Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And there are quite a few of these sorts of differences, and usually they're due to scribal errors. Uh, Hebrew uses letters for numbers, and so if you get your letter just not quite right, then it can be easily mistaken for another letter. And so then you have issues like this, where is this this person 8 or 18 when this happened? There's other times when the Bible will use round numbers, and so we want to take that into account as well. Are they rounding up, rounding down, roughly, that kind of thing? And when you look at it in those contexts, in that, in that way, you'll see that a lot of these, again, objections just melt away. Now, there's some more difficult ones, perhaps. Uh, this is asking the question, has anyone seen God? Jacob, after wrestling with the angel, he said, Genesis thirty-two thirty, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And then you have Exodus 33, verse 11, says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. But if you look at Exodus 33.20, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Remember, Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God said, you can't see me and live. Then John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then John 6.46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. So, have you, can you see God? Can you not see God? Jacob says he's seen God face to face. Moses has seen God face to face. But you can't see God. John says you can't see God. Well, Jacob wrestled with someone who, who was God in human, uh, human appearance, but not God's full glory. So when Moses saw God later, God veiled his glory before Moses. And the term face-to-face is really a figure of speech referring to the kind of intimate, open communication God and Moses had, just as friends do. And so, not necessarily God's face to Moses' face, but just an intimate sort of relationship. But Moses still couldn't bear to see God fully. No man could do that and live. So, the idea is, how have you seen God? Uh, In fact, the Incarnation helps us with this, doesn't it? The fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. You could see Jesus, though he was God. There's just different ways that we could talk about the term seeing God in this case. And it may well have been a pre-incarnate coming of Christ to to wrestle with Jacob in that case, uh, as Jacob did wrestle him. Does that make sense? Another one that is often brought up it was Abraham justified by faith or by works? Now, if you read Romans 4, Paul makes the point elsewhere in Romans and elsewhere in his writings, says that Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by faith alone. And yet you look at James, 
James 2.21 says, was, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And then you look a little later, verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now we don't have time to get into all the details, but the key to answering this supposed contradiction is just to read more carefully. If you look at Romans 4 verse 3, when Paul says Abraham was justified, he quotes from Isaiah 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul links justification to Genesis 15. But James links justification here in James 2 to when Abraham offered up Isaac on the altar, and that was Genesis 22. So Paul's idea of justification comes from Genesis 15. James comes from Genesis 22. So clearly, Paul and James are using the term justification to mean different things. Uh, many words we use don't have exact one meaning that's so small. Justification can mean something more broadly than that. And so Paul refers to one standing before God when he's talking about justification. And James sees it as a demonstration of one's standing before God. Paul's is judicial, and James is practical. And so when you see justification in that way, it makes it easy to explain these so-called differences between uh, what Paul says and what James says. They're referring to different things. Yeah, and I think often of John, in the Gospel of John, he's supposed to be the simplest, easiest kind of Gospel, the simplest Greek, even more immature kind of Greek, and yet people have traced at least ten different nuances in the way he used the word world, probably more than that. And so someone as simple as John can still have these nuances and distinctions, plays on words and so forth, and it, but when you read carefully, these things, again, tend to just melt away. Another question, does God change his mind? First Samuel fifteen twenty nine says, The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. But when we looked at Exodus 32, and Israelites had worshipped the golden calf, and God threatened to destroy them. And remember, Moses prays for them. And verse 14 says, The Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And so doesn't this contradict the idea of a God with a sovereign unchangeable plan is, does he change his mind or does he not change his mind? Well, this term, change his mind, translates one Hebrew word which you could also translate relented. So, for example, in Jonah, Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So, God only threatened judgment in some cases, and he had not actually decreed it. There are times when God says, I'm going to judge you. In fact, even in Jonah, he doesn't say, you must repent. He just says, 40 days, and then it's going to be overthrown. But that was a threat, not uh, an actual statement of, of say, prophecy, of, of fact that it would happen. So there are times when God relents, sometimes when God does not relent, when he has threatened some judgment. So again, he'd only threatened judgment in the case in Exodus 32. He had not actually decreed it. The one large category of these alleged contradictions are synoptic questions. And we've talked about these quite a bit in our study on the life of Christ. That is, 
issues related to the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't always record the same events, or the same details, I should say, for the same events. <clears throat> so, for one example, one Gospel mentions two angels who meet people after the resurrection, another might mention only one. But the second account doesn't say there was one and only one, it only just mentions one. And so, again, you read carefully, you see these issues are not so big, generally. You also might look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and compare the genealogies of Jesus. But some scholars believe that Matthew traces Jesus' line through Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, and Luke traces it through Mary. So if you go between your your father and mother, you would see, of course, different lines. Another fairly common example is has to do with the blind man or the blind men. As Jesus heals not too long before his crucifixion, as he's going to Jericho or leaving from Jericho. So Matthew 20 says this, verses 29 and 30, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Then Mark 10:46 says, As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And then Luke 18.35 says that Jesus was approaching Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the road begging. So Matthew mentions two men as they were leaving Jericho. Mark mentions one man while leaving Jericho. And Luke mentions one man while Jesus was approaching Jericho. How do we uh, understand these to to not be errors? You'd think one of them has to be wrong at least. There are several suggestions that could be plausible here. First of all, the the blind men heard about Jesus while he entered, but Jesus didn't actually heal them until he left, so they met him as he went in, and he healed them as he exited. Or some would say there are two Jerichos. There's one older Jericho and one newer Jericho. So he was leaving one Jericho and leaving or entering the other Jericho. Another difficult issue that was mentioned to me this week that we could look at was the timing of Jesus' crucifixion, especially as it regards the the Last Supper and and Passover and so forth. So, here's a a number of verses here. We'll look at Matthew, or sorry, Mark and Luke, and then a couple of verses in John. We have, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is eating a Passover meal, which we call the Last Supper, the evening before the crucifixion. So generally seen as Thursday evening. So Mark... uh, 14.12 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And similarly, in Luke 22.7 and 8, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. So you have in Mark the Passover lamb being sacrificed during the, the day of the Thursday, and then they will eat the Passover meal that evening. And yet, when you read John, it seems to suggest that Jesus was crucified while the lambs were being slaughtered for Passover. So John 18.28 says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early. They themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. And then John 19.14 says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, or 6 a.m. And Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. Now there are many ways of trying to harmonize these accounts. Some will say they're just flat contradictions. 
those people who are skeptics, but for those who believe that God's word is true, there are many ways to harmonize these, and we can't go through all of them. We might go through them more when we actually get there in our study of the life of Christ. But just briefly to, to say these views kind of line up in these ways. One says there are different calendars. One idea, for example, was that Galilean Jews had their Passover one day and Judean Jews the next day. But there's really not strong evidence of such a difference, but it is a possibility. So that would mean that the Galilean Jews, like like Jesus and the disciples, for the most part, would have their Passover meal on Thursday, but there's still the Passover happening on Friday for the Judean Jews, which would be most of the, the priests and so forth. Others would say that the Last Supper on Thursday evening wasn't actually a Passover meal. It was just a preview the day before, because Jesus knew that he would be dead before the actual Passover meal. And this this view that... The Passover really was the, the lambs were sacrificed on Friday, not Thursday. Uh, but we see that the verses from Mark and Luke say it was the day when the Passover was being sacrificed. Others would say that Jesus wasn't actually sacrificed at the same time as the Passover lambs, but the day after. And so while the Passover lambs were a type of Christ, it was not necessary that he die at the same time. So Passover, lambs are sacrificed on Thursday, Passover meal on Friday or Thursday evening with the disciples. Jesus is tried, of course, and then crucified on Friday, uh, the day after the lambs themselves were sacrificed. Well, then how do we explain what John says in his verses here? Well, with regard to the 1828 verse, when it says they wanted to not be defiled but eat the Passover... Remember, Passover was a week long, and there was more than just the Passover meal on that, that night after the, 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 the sacrifices of the, the lambs. And these Jewish leaders wanted to stay ceremonially pure for the entire week so they could be part of the entire festival. Also, in John 19, it talks about the day of preparation for the Passover. That term, day of preparation, was often used of Friday. Not, not just this Friday, but any Friday, because they're preparing for what? The Sabbath. And so, Friday is the day of preparation for the Sabbath in the evening. So they are preparing on, on this this Friday now, John 19, 14. It was a day of preparation for the Passover. It was early in the morning. And so it, we could say it's, it's actually, the idea is not so that it's the Friday that the Passover happened, the, the original sacrifice, but it's more understood as the Friday of the Passover, of this entire week. Now, what about the verse where it says, John 19, 36, it says, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. They, remember when the, the, the centurion gets to Jesus, he sees he's already dead and so doesn't break his, his legs. And that fulfills a prophecy about the Passover. The, the Passover was a type of Christ. Well, this aspect of the Passover was fulfilled at the cross, but it doesn't require that Jesus be crucified at the same time as a Passover lamb. Now, there's some maybe dramatic interest in having Jesus hanging on the cross and, and bleeding as we have the Passover lambs not too far away being sacrificed for the Passover, but that's not necessarily the case. It's not even necessary for the prophecy to be fulfilled or for the history or, or for the, the, the gospel accounts that Jesus actually die while the Passover lambs were dying themselves. But whatever the explanation, again, several ones that may be possible we don't know what the right one is, but there are several plausible ones. 
And as I've said several times, with careful comparison, most of these issues work themselves out pretty easily. The gospel writers were not blindly copying each other. They gave different but compatible accounts of the events of Jesus' life. Any quick questions before we kind of wrap up here? Don't bring up any new ones, please. <laughs> we could do this all day. But anyone's, any questions about the ones I've already brought up? Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of these Yeah, a lot of these skeptics, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, but a lot of these skeptics are not trying to honestly ask questions. They are there to to tear the scriptures apart if if they can do so. They try to do so. Yes. Good. Yeah, and I could list more time permitting, but hopefully these are representative examples of the kinds of errors that some attribute to scripture. And I hope this survey helps you when you run across difficulties in your own reading or are confronted by a skeptic or someone just asking an honest question. Even if they don't ask you about these exact issues I've brought up, at least you know the answer is probably out there somewhere. And as I've said before, you don't need to panic and think that somebody has this key that's, or, or this, this, this attack that's going to destroy the foundation of Scripture that nobody's heard of in 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years the whole edifice is coming down because one person asks you one question. So don't don't be afraid of destroying your faith. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. You can say, I don't know, but I'll try and find out for you. Nobody's going to be able to take down Christianity in the Bible with the one question that they happen to find you to ask. Let me just quote the theologian Lorraine Bentner. Lorraine is a man. Uh, I'm glad I'm not Lynn named Lorraine, but maybe it was a man's name back in the day. Lorraine Bentner says this, The alleged errors in the Bible have been, for the most part, trivial. In no cases have important doctrines or important historical events been in question. When fuller light is turned on them, most of them, like ghosts, melt away from sight. Few, if any of them, are anything more than mistakes on the part of copyists or translators, and certainly no one has a right to say there are errors in the Bible unless he can show beyond reasonable doubt that they were in the original manuscripts. The few difficulties which still remain are so trivial that no one should be seriously troubled by them. There is every reason for believing that with additional knowledge, they too will be cleared up. In view of past experience, it is important to keep in mind that there is a strong presumption against any of them being real errors, a presumption which can be measured only by the whole weight of evidence which can be brought forward to prove that the Bible is a trustworthy, a fully trustworthy guide in moral and spiritual matters. Even though it be admitted that the Bible contains some few statements which we in our present state of knowledge are not able to harmonize that should afford no rational ground for denying the general doctrine of Scripture infallibility. We have the word of Christ himself that says the Scripture cannot be broken. And more than that, we should not ask. Neither should the Christian give up his faith in a fully inspired Bible just because he is unable to harmonize every detail with all of the remainder. So a few comments as we close. First of all, discussing, disputing, or arguing won't convert anyone. Uh, 
the Pharisees were probably inerrantists, weren't they? Did they believe in Christ? No. Some may ask questions out of a genuine desire to find an answer, but some may just be picking a fight, as we talked about before. But whatever the motivation for these questions, people need a work of the Spirit. You could hand someone a stack of books by Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel and Ken Ham and so forth, and you could win every argument, and still people will resist the message. Uh, think of Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We look back at Acts verse 6, chapter 16, verse 14. This uh, beautiful picture of Lydia Acts 16.14, and it says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Acts 17, Jesus, or Paul is speaking on at, at Mars Hill in Athens, and we see here, verse 32, after Paul has preached, and he talks about those that, that, that Jesus was raised from the dead, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom are, or who also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we have Paul speaking the same message to a group of people on the top of this hill. Some believed, and some didn't. And what's the difference? Was it some were more intelligent? Some were uh, more moral even? Some paid closer attention? To Paul, now it's because God opened their heart to understand these things. So it may have been the smartest folks didn't believe in Christ, um, the most sophisticated didn't believe in Christ, but those who believed, believed because of what God did in their heart. They heard the same message in this case. They were of much the same background as the, the sneerers, Dionysius and Demarus, but God did a work in them. So first of all, don't rely on your apologetic skills to convert anybody. We want to pray always that God would touch their hearts. Second, be humble when discussing these issues. The goal is not to win arguments. This isn't a, a Twitter fight. This is people trying to convey the truth and persuade people to believe in Jesus, to persuade someone of the truth of God by God's grace. And you may have seen apologists who seem to be very proud of their skill and their knowledge of Scripture and their skill in winning debates, but in their pride and their drive to win, they can leave broken and bruised people in their wake. You may have seen this before. A Christian kind of intellectually beating up on a non-Christian just to win a fight and not to win them to Christ. A simple, humble Christian who sincerely admits ignorance but makes an effort to seek the truth can do more for the cause of Christ than a proud, knowledgeable Christian who wields the truth like a hammer. Third, keep faithfully striving to understand the Scriptures. Keep faithfully striving to understand the Scriptures. As much as you might know the Word, you can know it better. James White speaks of the struggle to address difficulties within the Bible. He says this, I have never received greater benefits than when I have in trust and expectancy knuckled down to do the work to figure out these difficulties. 
I feel sorry for the modern believers who think the instant answers and easy solutions must be theirs right now. Microwave theology. True, valuable, long-lasting insights come through patient meditation and study, and only in God's time. We are rarely patient enough to obtain such lofty, lofty understanding and the confidence that comes therefrom. And then finally, one last very important thing to remember. Let your study of Scripture, your study of apologetics, your study of these alleged errors drive you closer to the God of Scripture. If this effort doesn't bring us closer to Christ, make us more like Christ, it's not really worth the effort. Find something else to do with your time. James White continues, As I consider God's gift of his word, I am thankful that I have been forced to examine its history closely and from many angles. And when I do, I am again and again forced by knees and thanksgiving for what he has done. He has not left us to wander in darkness. He has provided us with a reliable, trustworthy guide in Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your trustworthy guide that is Holy Scripture, that you, again, are a God of truth. You speak the truth. You give the truth to us. You send your Son, who is the truth, to us. You have the, the spirit of truth you have put in our hearts. We thank you that you have given us this true word, even when we don't understand all of it, when there are things that we can't quite reconcile with, with history or science or even with other scriptures. But we know that it is reliable and that with diligent effort, we will be enlightened even if we don't get all the questions we want this side of heaven. Help us to be faithful, to be kind, loving, even when we need to be firm with those who contradict your word. May we speak it boldly and faithfully and lovingly. And may our our efforts to speak the truth to people who need to hear the, the gospel bear much fruit, bring people to faith in our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.